Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you. I think Mary Lee and I had the quietest Christmas we've ever had in our lives. Wouldn't you agree, love? I think so. I'm going to read a little more than I asked to the screen to have this morning from Luke chapter 2, which is where we've been the last few weeks. And we welcome all of you who are guests. We know that Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter, we visit a lot with our families. And so those of you who we just see once a year, welcome. It's good to have you here. This morning, our theme is Simeon. And both Simeon and Anna are delightful apostrophes on the Christmas story. They're just very small. As a matter of fact, the Christmas story really, (laughs) except for the angels, the whole Christmas story is very small. That's what's notable about it, and that's why poor people don't resent it. It's not a story about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth, (laughs) is it? Let me begin with verse 21 of Luke chapter 2. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And when eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I'm just going to finish with, depending on whether you're a Bork or not, Anna or Anna. Which should I say? Let's call it Anna, okay? And there was a prophetess. There's a young woman in our congregation, and her name, I think, is Anna. But every time I say it, I'm corrected. It's Anna! She doesn't ever do that. She's gracious. But she has some men she's associated with. Well, maybe not in the plural. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then is a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. It's interesting. I wish we could do uh, Anna today, too, Anna today, too. Uh, what beautiful pair. <laughs> Tugs at our hearts. And it's, it is noteworthy that it refers to Simeon waiting for the Messiah by saying that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And it says about Anna that what? It says that she... Where am I? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. It says that she was looking for the redemption, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Israel. All right? Now, Joseph and Mary had named their little one Jesus. And this was in obedience to the command of God. At eight days, they obeyed God and had him circumcised. They marked him with the sign of the covenant, which had been passed down to them from Abraham, he was of the lineage of David, and therefore he was of the lineage of Abraham. All of their children were to be marked with this sign of God's contract with them. God said, all of your males are to be circumcised, and it was to be done on the eighth day. Well, Mary and Joseph were pious. They were devout. Mary and Joseph were godly. And so they did what God told them to do. It's actually not godliness to always find a reason to not do what God tells us to do. It shows you're smart, but we're supposed to be obedient. It's hard when you're a teenager, but trust me, it's even harder when you're an adult. Okay? And so they marked him with a sign of the covenant. <clears throat> and then shortly after his circumcision, they took their little one, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. 
He was a firstborn son. And so this was required by God. Again, they're just simply doing the faithful, obedient things. They're not inventing anything. And it was also required that they present God with an offering at that time. So they would present their, their male child, not their female, their male children. If you don't like that, you wouldn't have done it, right? <laughs> they presented their male child. And with the child, if they were poor, they would present two turtle doves or two pigeons. But not two, actually, a pair Isn't that sweet? Just like going into the ark. The man and his female. Well, any of you know turtle doves? (laughs) Very sweet thing about turtle doves, isn't it? And so they presented either turtle doves or pigeons, the pair. This indicated that they were very poor. And Joseph and Mary fulfilled all righteousness. They did not despise Jerusalem. They did not despise the temple of the Lord. They did not despise the religious rites presided over by evil men who tormented Jesus his entire life. The priests, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees and Pharisees. Let me put a a fine point on it and say they did not home dedicate. They did not home baptize. They had much the same reasons then that we have now for despising the church of Jesus Christ and her officers. All right. They were humble, they were godly. And they submitted themselves to those who sat in the seat of Moses, or who sat themselves in the seat of Moses. So Joseph and Mary fulfilled all righteousness. This is the reason that Mary and Joseph and their infant Jesus were in Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, two wonderful things happened. They met Simeon, and they met Anna. Now we read about Simeon, verse 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So first, his name was Simeon. Second, he actually lived in Jerusalem. Then, third, he was righteous. In other words, uh, inside, he was pure. Dikaios, he was... He was a pure, holy man. He was righteous. This was his character. All right. Then it says that he was also devout. And what devout means is that he was giving himself to the means of grace commanded by God. You ever heard that phrase, the means of grace? This refers to all the habits that are external that the godly do in obedience to God. So he was devout, meaning he gave himself to prayer, he gave himself to the holy days, he gave himself to the tithes and offerings, to the temple worship, he gave himself to the ministry of the priests. He gave himself to service to the poor. He cared for the widows and orphans in their distress. All these visible 
tangible acts are what define a righteous man. A righteous man is never defined by what he tells you about himself through his mouth. (laughs) You see a righteous man more than you hear him. Okay? In other words, Simeon was Enoch. And you know what the Bible says about Enoch, right? Enoch walked with God... And he was no more. Do you all know that about Enoch? That's all it says about Enoch. And Enoch walked with God, and he was no more. (laughs) This is about what's, what's about to happen to Simeon. Now, why do I say Enoch when his name is Simeon? Well, because when I was in seminary, uh, one day I was looking for a job, and I saw on the bulletin board that there was a a job that seemed odd because you were supposed to contact so-and-so who would then be the contact with the employer. And it looked like an interesting job. It involved some cleaning. I love to clean. And so I contacted so-and-so who put me in touch with whatchamacallit. Well, whatchamacallit was filthy rich and lived out on Smith's Point in Manchester by the sea. And the reason that you had to go through thingamajiggy to get to such and such was that thingamajiggy was making sure that nobody inappropriate would get through to such and such, right? So finally I got hired, and as soon as I got hired, I met the important part of that job, which was Enoch. Enoch at that time was probably about 82, 83. He was a short man. He'd spent his life playing the piano at the Baptist church there in Manchester. But he didn't play anymore because he had bad arthritis, and so his, his hands were gnarled, as older people's get. So he couldn't play the piano. Enoch was godly. Enoch was a man of very few words. One of his favorite expressions was, was to look at you and to say, Don't say a word, boy. Don't say a word. And that was his way of guarding my tongue and his tongue. You know, there were times when we both looked at each other and had words to say, you know, typically about our employer or something that had just happened. He'd say, don't say a word, boy. One day I was talking to him complaining, and he said, how are you saying that, boy? And I'd say, how am I saying what? And he'd say, are you saying disappointment or his appointment? And I learned how he approached life. It was very sad. His wife had died many years earlier, and they had had two sons. They had lived in New York. He had worked as an HVAC man. And uh, he had absolutely no contact with his sons. Uh, That's still a mystery. I've even gone online trying to figure out who they might be. I don't, didn't have internet back then, <laughs> you know. Enoch spent all day, every day, in prayer and scripture reading. Television was never on. Occasionally, he'd pick up a magazine and look for it a little bit. He had a very thick Bible that Jerry Falwell had sent him. He was a big supporter of Jerry Falwell. You know, maybe $10 a month, probably, actually. And it was thick, large print, and every time he would read a chapter, 
he would have a different colored marker, and he would put a check mark next to the chapter uh, number. And so you had this line of different color check marks, okay? He would get up in the morning. He had sold his house to a young couple that were poor in his Baptist church with the agreement that he could live in a little room he built on the back of the house. He could live there until he died. I doubt that he charged them much at all for the house. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if he gave it to them. He would come in the morning, then he would, and he drove the car that the Spaldings let him use, and then he would go downtown for lunch to a little cafe, and he'd eat lunch, he'd come back, then he'd go down for dinner, then he'd come back, and usually he was there until maybe 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. He got there early in the morning, he stayed until night. He would go out, he would dig the tubers, you know, for the dahlias, he would fertilize, he would water the rose, they had formal gardens, you know, he would... He, but there was, he was at the point where there was not much that he could do, except sit in the house and protect it, and so he did it. Once a year, he got a check for $500 from the Spaldings. You all with me? One year, it was 2500 because he prayed because Jerry Falwell's radio tower fell down. And so he was so proud that God had given him 2500 to send to Jerry. But he told me not to tell the Spaldings that's what he was doing with the money. <laughs> Mr. Spaulding ran for office and would not have approved. Now you think about the godly that God has put in your life. You think about them. Who is the Enoch in your life? Who is the Anna in your life? My dad used to say that, and I guess I have to explain a little more, he spent his life speaking and preaching around the country. And so he got into all kinds of churches, all kinds of conventions and stuff. But the churches that most frequently had him were Presbyterian. And many of them were PCUSA, which was the large mainline uh, denomination that I went into and was ordained in. Yeah. And... Uh, I remember my dad saying to me, he said, you go into any Presbyterian church in the country. And he said, there is a godly older woman in that church who has been praying for it for decades. And he's right. We have godly older women here. You know, I couldn't mention Anna without thinking about Rita Cuffey. Think of the people that God puts in your life who are godly. And you know what's interesting about them is that you see it. And sometimes you hear it. And this was Simeon and Anna. Anna just prayed. She didn't call attention to herself in the temple. It was just sort of like Lucy Cabrera flitting across the back of the church, you know, Lucy is not saying, look at me. 
She's very quiet. She just came up to Mary Lee and me right before the service, and she said, may God bless you this coming year, whatever he has for you. Now think, who has God put in your life who is a Simeon, who is an Anna? Don't miss them. I came to believe that the, the entire reason I, I, I work for the Spaldings was for the godly influence of Enoch. When I moved to Bloomington, it very quickly was evident to me that I wasn't there to help any church, but I was there to be helped by Rita. What a help she was to me. So here we have Simeon. And we read in verse 26, he was righteous, he was devout. He was the seeking the healing of his nation through the Messiah. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And then we read verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now listen, every single time you read the word Christ, what you have to remember is it's simply the Greek version of the Messiah. It means the anointed one. Everybody knew that's what it meant. And so what it's being said here is it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen God's Messiah, the Lord's Messiah. Now, Simeon's waiting. What is he waiting for? Well, he's waiting for two things. He's waiting for death, right? He's also waiting for the thing that God promised would happen before he died. And that is that he would see the Messiah. How kind for God to give a man whose heart beat for the Messiah, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. How kind of God to promise him, you'll see him. And of course, again, I can't help but think of Rita Cuffey. If you know anything about the reform world, which is the ghetto that this church lives in, among churches, you know that any time a man is examined for ordination, he's asked whether he believes in the continuation of the supernatural gifts. And what they're trying to tease out is whether he believes in prophecy today. That's the main thing they're concerned about, that they not ordain a man who believes that God still speaks. <laughs> And so what you're supposed to say is, no, I do not believe in the... Con now, you can get by with saying what David Wagner and I both said on the same day in our presbytery, which was, well, yes, but they're not revelatory. God still speaks, but it is not inerrant. It's not... Yes, he does. What David said is actually, well, maybe he does, but before I'd know whether or not he does, we'd have to take two men, put them in rooms with the doors shut, have them both hear the prophetic word that was spoken, then have them in two sides. This is actually what David said. Then have them both write down the interpretation of what they had said, bring the interpretations together, and then if they both match, then yes, God has spoken. I thought it was genius. <laughs> 
it threw everybody off the trail. You know, everybody sort of gave up. Well, <laughs> I guess he's thought that through carefully, you know. Well, listen, let me ask you a question. Has the canon of the Old Testament ceased? Come on. There hadn't been a prophet for how long? The Bible tells us that God had not been speaking for 400 years. There was the absence of God prophet, giving his word to his prophets for centuries. And yet what we read here is that it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he'd seen the Lord's Christ. This is exactly what I think of Rita. Rita had a very, very flea-bitten, skeptical, uh, somewhere on the autistic spectrum husband named Jimmy, <laughs> you know. And Jimmy and Rita were at house all the time for holidays and birthdays. They were our family. But I'm telling you, Jimmy was hardened in his skepticism. I remember the sermon that I gave that he was more cantankerous afterwards than any sermon I had ever given was the Sunday that I began to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. And so the first Sunday, I simply read from beginning to end the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't add a word of my own. And it was that sermon that Jimmy was most in the door of the church, just, well, that's just, you know, the equivalent of, he was an emeritus professor of astronomy. Yeah, well, that was just, that's just ridiculous, you know. And he went on, don't worry, we loved him very much, you know. So meeting weekly with Rita regularly, she would tell me what? Well, she would say to me, God has revealed to me that Jimmy is going to come to faith. And I would listen to her. And of course, I would think the same thing all you thought, which was, well, yeah, right. You know, I mean, Rita's sweet. She really loves her husband. You know, patronizing it, but never saying it. You know, oh, that's good, Rita. And then it got worse because we ended up having to discipline Jimmy for some of the things he said in a Sunday school class publicly, and we had to rebuke him to the congregation, you know? <laughs> it's like, well, this is really going to help Rita's faith, you know? We thought he'd never come back. And do you know something? God used the elders of this church to bring Jimmy to faith. Now, you say, well, it was his wife. Well, of course it was his wife. But God used discipline of a man who just spread unbelief and skepticism everywhere he went. And do you know that I had the joy of the last few weeks of his life in the hospital, visiting them and seeing Rita sit next to him, holding his hand and stroking it with her other hand, and praying and singing hymns and reading scripture. Now, that was beautiful in and of itself. But the thing that was really sweet was there was a complete change to Jimmy's demeanor. Jimmy was at peace as his wife read scripture. Now, as a pastor, you go into hospital rooms, you read scripture and pray with people. Some people are at peace. Some people are not at peace. They're polite, but they're not at peace. 
Jimmy was at peace. I'm convinced that God had spoken to Rita and said, your, your husband will come to faith. And he did. And it was the testimony of the elders of this church that he had true faith and he was welcome to the Lord's table. Now listen, don't patronize the godly, quiet people who tell you that God has said something to them. The canon had ended. Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see Jesus. I'm not trying in any way to displace, to displace or call into question the end of the canon of the New Testament now. I'm not trying to say that God gives people uh, a prophetic word that they can commit adultery. But God speaks to the godly. He speaks through visions. He speaks through dreams. Many of you here, God has spoken to. Do not make your God small. When he speaks to you, be like whom? Come on, come on. Samuel. Remember Samuel? Little boy Samuel. He spoke to Samuel. Well, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and this made his wait easier because God said, you're going to see him. You're going to see him. Now, Mary and Joseph were at the temple fulfilling the duties of the righteous. Jesus was with them, a babe in arms, and he, Simeon, came in the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit directed him to the temple. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and bless God. Oh, man. You know, mothers are beautiful. Mothers holding babies are beautiful. But, you know, there's a beauty about a, a man holding a baby that is gorgeous. Up in Wisconsin, we had the best skeet shooter, the best fisherman. He was the barber in Cambria. His name was Chuck Dykstra. I saw him a couple of months ago. He's about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, erect, perfectly fit still. And any meeting, any potluck, any time people got together, he would find the youngest baby. And he would take it from its mother's arms, and he would just hold it as he talked to people and walked around. And he always had a baby in his arms. Simeon took Jesus into his arms, and he blessed God. His wait was over. The consolation of Israel, the comfort and healing of Israel, he was here in his arms. Simeon was filled with joy. Simeon loved his nation, Israel. Simeon knew God's servants, the prophets, had foretold this coming Messiah would comfort and heal Israel. Israel had been waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping for this promised Messiah for centuries. Now let's stop here for a second 
and take note of something. Israel had also been misled by many men who were self-appointed leaders selling themselves to the men and women of Israel as their political messiah. These men had claimed that they knew the times. Oh, they were known on the internet for knowing the times. And so they copied Absalom in promoting themselves in rabble-rousing. Some even got guns and marched on Rome. Well, because they were all self-appointed messiahs, none of them were true messiahs. They were all false messiahs. They did not have God's anointing, but Jesus did. And no surprise, they and the people who followed them did not recognize Jesus when he came. They did not recognize him to be the true Messiah because he was so... um, I mean, there were so many things about him that obviously disproved that he was the Messiah. Start with the fact that he wasted the first 30 years of his life. He didn't say anything publicly until he was 30, you know. Start with the fact that he was out in Galilee. I mean, can anything good come from Galilee? Then start with the fact that he didn't rabble rouse. What he did was he preached righteousness to the rabble so that they were unroused against anything except their sinful hearts. Simeon had waited patiently for the comfort and healing of his people Israel, and now his wait was over. So giving thanks to God for this little one in his arms, it says Simeon blessed God. What does it mean to bless God? Well, that's what we do when we lift our hands and look up to heaven and sing praises to him. Glory to you, God. Glory, 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 glory. Verse 29, now, Lord... You are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. It's interesting, according to your word. Was he talking about the word of the prophets or was he talking about the Holy Spirit's revelation to him? I'm, I'm going to say both. I think the meaning is there for both. And he says to depart in peace. Where is Simeon going? He's departing. What's this departing in peace? Well, you know where he's going, right? He's dying. He knows this is his death now. You know, this little child in his arms is visible to him, the grim reaper. And yet he seems to be cheerful. He seems to be glorifying God and happy and content. Isn't that weird? What is it that gives a man joy in his death? Well, he's, he's released. He has seen the one thing he hoped for more than anything else in life, which was what? The consolation of Israel. And so he says, 
you, speaking to God, you are releasing me. Now, Lord, you're killing me. Now, Lord, you're, you're giving me the freedom to die. And that's how the godly die. You know that. My older brother, when he was in the hospital in Philadelphia, I remember my dad coming home one evening. And my dad saying to me that Joe had said to him, Dad, I am ready to die. What a priceless gift of God to the godly. They're ready to die. Charlie was ready to die. We weren't ready for him to die. But that was his testimony for years. And you knew it as you watched him worship in this sanctuary. Verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Do you remember what his eyes had seen? What his eyes had seen, and listen, Adam was ready to die. All of you that have loved ones you've lost recently, who died in the Lord, they were ready to die. Have you ever found yourself thinking, I am so glad we don't live here forever? I mean, don't you ever think that? Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine being, what's the name of that dude in that movie? Oh. You know, people that believe in reincarnation? I mean, seriously. It's like Bob Dylan said in an interview. An interview over in England was trying to get him to say he believed in reincarnation. And Dylan kept declining. And the guy kept persisting. And Dylan kept declining as only Dylan would. And finally, Dylan says, what on earth, dude? He didn't say that, but that's sort of what he said. He said, how many times do you have to do it before you think you'll get it right? It's very interesting that when he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, he was speaking to God, but he's speaking about his eyes. What had his eyes seen? His eyes had only seen a little baby. That's all they'd seen. How can a little baby be our salvation? This baby was God's salvation. It's the plain meaning of Simeon's thanksgiving. What kind of salvation was this that Simeon was speaking of? Now, all the previous messiahs, every last one of them, false had spoken of financial salvation, had spoken of political salvation, had spoken of military salvation, of nationalistic, ethnic, racial salvation. Salvation from carbon emissions. Salvation for humanity. Salvation for the earth. Was this the salvation that Simeon spoke of in connection with the baby Jesus? You know, we can desire to be saved from many things. Nations, people groups can desire to be saved from many things. You, you yourself, have many things you desire to be saved from. But those given faith by God hunger and thirst after righteousness, yeah. And, you know, it's the beauty of old age. 
And old age has many beauties, but it's the beauty of old age that you grieve your sin more and more every day. That's the beauty of old age. Salvation from evil and sin is what the God we pray for and work for and wait for. For them, no salvation from anything comes close to salvation from sin and guilt and condemnation. Remember at the beginning of our text, we're told Joseph and Mary named their baby Jesus eight days after his birth. Remember this was in obedience to God's command. Well, when did Jesus, when did God command this? Well, he commanded it through his angel to Joseph. We read in Matthew 1, when he, Joseph, had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then this, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then the explanation, for he will save his people from their sins. And so this is the salvation that Simeon is speaking of when he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This was the consolation, the comfort of Israel. I keep telling you, I keep warning you, do not take your eyes off the ball. The ball is not COVID policy. You are not political if you are a righteous one. I'm not saying you don't vote. I'm not saying you don't run for office. But my goodness, if that man Samuel Johnson knew enough to say that all schemes of political improvement are a laughable thing, how much more the godly. We have to get our minds and our hearts focused on the righteousness from above. Do not live your life a victim of the wicked. Simeon didn't. Anna didn't. He says, verse 21, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Now, I can't help but take special delight in those words of his, because I mean, if there's anything we all have allegiance to, it's our tribe. You know, well, I'm descended from the Puritans, and the original idea behind America was Virginia and, and Massachusetts Bay Colony, and, 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 and I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. And my people, my people did not intend this, and, and our founding fathers, and, and the Constitution, and, and I, I mean to tell you... <laughs> You know, the, the West is Christendom. 
you know. You know, we have all these reasons why we're special. You know, I'm special because my ancestors' graves are in Evergreen Cemetery where Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Ain't I special? And so I'm all about the North in the Civil War. I hear you. And so what we do is we keep drawing these lines and we don't stop to think that these lines are not coterminous with the lines of God. We're not drawing God's lines when we talk about the Constitution and American exceptionalism and the Republican Party and the Democrats. We're not drawing God's lines. Why? You say, well, but I mean... Okay, they're not God's lines, but that doesn't mean they're not important. And I say, how much time and energy do you think you have in your short lifetime? I know how much time you spend on politics and being right. (laughs) I see it. I hear it when you talk to me. We must return to God. We must do the work of godliness. We must study scripture. We must study scripture until it is pervasively eating us alive from the inside out. Until we too are godly. We must study and know scripture and pray so much that all the political people think that we're utterly useless because we talk about God, right? I mean, honestly, can we stop it all and think about God and read his word and pray to him and talk about him at Thanksgiving and Christmas? You should stop and you should keep a track of every minute's conversation when your family gets together. You know, and a hash mark for COVID and a hash mark for God. Oh, it'd be so depressing, right? Now, why am I saying all this? Well, did you notice here? He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. So he's talking about salvation for sin. And then he says this, which you, God, has prepared in the presence. In other words, in the sight. Everybody knows it. Prepare ye the way of... He sent John the Baptist. Everybody sees it. He's prepared it in the presence of all peoples. And then he says, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. (laughs) To the Democrats. The only thing is, they would have hated the Gentiles more than Republicans hate the Democrats. This man who is godly has what we would call a liberal heart. He is not trying to fence off the mercy of God to sinners from Gentiles. But he is proclaiming that God is inclusive. Do you remember Psalm 93, excuse me, 98, 
where the psalmist says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the favor for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. The nations, not just Israel. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. So this is Simeon. Simeon, remember Lucas was praying and asking for God to give us expansive hearts, open hearts, loving hearts. You know, you can't go through Christmas without wondering how on earth God could love the world so much that he would send his only begotten son. And you know, you go through Jesus' life, we're only beginning with it. His life was a life of humiliation and suffering. He had no place to lay his head. He was rejected by all the religious leaders except a very few. The rich rejected him. Rome rejected him. It seems like Rome had more of a conscience, though, in rejecting him than the religious leaders of the Jews had. At least they had some regret, Pilate washing his hands. And you know, you think about all the ways that we can spend our life all the things we can give attention to, all the things that we can desire. There's a lot of desiring that goes on at Christmas. But do we ourselves and do our children see us hungering and thirsting after the salvation of God? Do they see us tender of conscience while we play risk? You get what I'm saying there? Some guy wrote into Sanityville, he's a scientist at Scripps out in La Jolla, and he said that these are how his family time's going. He described playing risk with his family. And the whole description was of, of how, what a sort of nasty thing it was. You know, the kids were nasty, the mom was nasty, the daughters were nasty. The, and, and, and then he talked about how Towards the end, he was about to win when something nasty happened. I almost wrote him and I said, you know, years ago, I played Frisbee with Hannah Merriman and from that point on, I won't play games. Because I looked in my heart, I won't tell you what I did, it was awful. And I realized that anytime I play a game, it's all about me winning. I know the rest of you aren't that way. (laughs) And I decided that I would allow my family to have a lifetime of playing games enjoyably. (laughs) You think about, you think about the sin of your heart and it's, it's serious sin when a father wants to win a game. 
I mean, you know, come on, lighten up, Tim. Okay, I'll lighten up. It's even serious sin when the mother wants to win the game. <laughs> you know. But I've never known a mother like that. <laughs> Are you there? That's hilarious. Oh. So listen, my dear brothers and sisters, and those of you who don't know Jesus, would you please look in your hearts and see your sin? And would you begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness? Would you stop keeping track of diet and masks and vaccines and politics? You know, as I was getting ready to preach, I thought of of something. You know that God has a plan for all of us and that we follow the plan. That's our desire in life is to fulfill his plan for us. And you know that many, many women are called to simply give themselves to life-giving, to motherhood, okay? And you know that many men are called to be very active. Are you with me? Active. You know what I mean by active. You know, in other words, cutting trees, you know, corralling cattle, um, moving money, Preaching at church, uh, sawing lumber, shooting little baby does. <laughs> Butchering rabbits. In other words, many, many men are called by God to be physically busy, to be known, to be paid. And I, 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 I feel deep within me a desire to look down on those who live a life of contemplation, okay? I, I see them as ineffective men. And so can you imagine me thinking that Simeon was ineffective Was Simeon a serious man? I'm not sure. All we know is that he was devout and godly. But did he have a name for himself? I think one of the lessons that we should get here is that The devout and godly who are quiet and contemplative should not look down on those of us who have work to do. Because the active ones with mouths are working as the contemplative ones with prayer are working. We all have our place. But those of us with mouths should never look down on Simeon and Anna. Anna. Never look down on those who fill up the cup of the righteousness of the people of God. There should be a special tenderness in our hearts to them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Simeon and Anna. Father, there's so much in Scripture as we come to the end of the year that we're so thankful for because we don't know how we would live without knowing about Simeon and Anna. We thank you for Lucy, we thank you for Rachel, we thank you for Rita, we thank you for 
Joe and for Richard, for David. We thank you for Tim. We thank you for all the men of this church who have given themselves to waiting patiently for your salvation and proclaiming it. Father, we pray that you will fill this church with godly women like Anna and godly men like Simeon. We pray, Lord, that we will be known as a church that is patient and that anticipates death not from being morbid or ghoulish, but we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Comfort us, Father, with the glorious hope of glorification when sin shall be no more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.